Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are the partner, several of the partners of Gaslowitz Frankel, uh, Craig Frankel, Adam Gaslowitz, and Millie Bombush. And we're having a roundtable discussion about how to protect your kids from estate disputes. We are an estate litigation firm, and we see lots of estate problems. Um, many estates, of course, are probated and handled without problems at all. But the ones that come to us are problems uh, where we've got lots of problems either with the um, the will itself or, as seems increasingly likely, with the administration of the estate after the will is filed for probated. So let's start by talking about some of the problems we're seeing. What kinds of problems are you seeing, Adam? Uh, well, a lot of the problems we're seeing involve bad choices of fiduciaries and the problems that they cause either through conflict with the beneficiaries of an estate or the beneficiaries of a trust or with the uh, mismanagement of assets while they're administering estates. It's been a, a long-term gripe of mine that we don't take the time necessary to actually pick fiduciaries well. And, and as um, uh, estate planning attorneys, we tend to just accept what our clients tell us about what uh, about who the fiduciary should be. And it's often, you know, my oldest son, my, my new spouse. And uh, a lot of times more thought needs to go into the sort of dynamics that that family has and whether those choices that might otherwise be good choices are not necessarily good for that particular family structure. Uh, we often recommend corporate fiduciaries simply because it avoids a lot of the conflict that families sometimes have that play out in the role of managing an estate. I have found, and I think this is really the issue that that is important when we're dealing about estates and children. Everyone loves their children, hopefully, and most people think that their spouse and children, their fourth spouse and children, will make good decisions, and they likely will. It's very hard to predict where you're going to have the problems. And one of the things we're going to talk about today is, because it's hard to predict, Let's talk about protections. And, and one of those really deals with fiduciaries. It's often where you put a spouse, even the original spouse, the, the mother or father of the children um, and the children together. That works out well until the spouse ages. And now you've got difficult decisions to make regarding where they're going to live, how their money is going to be spent. I've never met somebody as they age not to worry about money running out. But it's a natural conflict now between the eldest child and the parent, and the parent often comes to resent the decisions that the child is making because they're having a reverse role. And so I would often want to ask the question, why would you want to put your surviving spouse and your children in that position? Because they should be in areas of support, not not conflict. I think what we see sometimes, too, is that particularly in blended families, people will put the surviving spouse, uh, you know, one side, with a as a co-fiduciary with the child of the spouse who was deceased, thinking that there'll be a check and balance on each other. I, I uh, prefer in, the in, word. I prefer the word plaintiff and waiting. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know what I think. What we see is that if these relationships aren't working well when everyone is alive, they're not going to work well uh, when an estate is involved. Sure, and most of these relationships involve 
uh, unanimous decision making. So if you're co-executors, you have to decide unanimously. And if you don't get along or don't agree on things, it's very hard to come to a decision. And often uh, estates or trusts end up being not administered at all while people either disagree or, or, or can't make decisions. And, and let's highlight the fact that difference between an executor and trustee, I think people often are confused by that. An executor is somebody who probates the will. And assuming things go relatively well, it will, it will stop. Their goal is to marshal the assets and then ultimately distribute them. Uh, a, a trustee may be in place for many, many years. Um, in fact, the Georgia legislature is contemplating extending the time a trust can survive to over 365 years. So trustees are in place a lot longer. That is really the area that you have the potential for the most problems and abuse. And that raises, of course, the issue of successor trustees, because presumably the initial trustee won't be there for 365 years. But there needs to be some careful consideration to who the successor trustees are going to be. Yeah, the other problem with co-fiduciaries, particularly when you've got uh, people who are not of equal status, like a surviving spouse and a child, is they have different interests in the assets that they're managing. So uh, a surviving spouse may have an interest in the income during her lifetime, whereas the children may own the remainder interest. And so their decision-making is going to differ in terms of, of, of how assets should be invested, how uh, assets should be distributed, uh, whether discretionary distribution should be made to, say, the surviving spouse or, or held and reinvested for the benefit of the uh, children who are remainder beneficiaries. You, you set up a, a conflict situation that is hard to resolve. And, and I, I have found when talking to planners, and, and I say talking to planners because at Gaswood Frankel, we largely just deal, in fact, only to see, deal with the disputes. We're not planners. We are uh, litigators. But when talking to planners, they say that the hardest decision for their clients is who the executor or trustee should be, and that it's very difficult to come up with the right person, and they often default ending up to the spouse or the um, oldest child. And so, so one of my questions would be, well, if you're not going to use the spouse or older child together, which in theory is supposed to be a counterbalance, who should you use? Well, corporate fiduciaries are usually the best example. If you have an estate large enough to be worried about these issues, a corporate fiduciary, a, a bank or a trust company is, is um, a better choice because they're, they're generally objective. They're used to dealing with the kinds of issues that arise. They're used to um, uh, making investment decisions that are, um, that are fair and balanced. They're used to making decisions uh, on discretionary distributions because that it's what they do. Uh, it also, there's, there's a big misconception by a lot of people and a lot of planners also that, uh, that it is more expensive to use a corporate fiduciary. But in the end, it's really not, it shouldn't be a cost issue. I mean, the cost of a fiduciary is usually some percentage of the estate. Uh, a corporate fiduciary will charge uh, uh, what they have on their published fee schedule. But the individuals, you know, in addition to what they might charge as fees, have to hire out for a lot of the things that a corporate fiduciary would do. So, you know, getting tax returns done, um, managing assets, dealing with timber that might be in, in place, or dealing with a business to manage. I mean, all those things cost money, whether you've got corporate fiduciary doing it or individuals hiring people to do it. And, and the single largest problem we have dealing with trusts as they're being administered is the perceived improprieties of the fiduciary. And it's almost always caused by the beneficiary asking questions and the trustee not giving them the information, either because they don't want to give it to them or because it's not easily accessible to them. One of the great advantages of a corporate fiduciary is there will always be transparency. And just like we have in our open records laws and Freedom of Information Act for the government, um, one of the great 
uh, protections against abuses in our democracy is transparency. And I, I think that's the same answer with wills and trusts and powers of attorney. The more information that is shared timely is is going to help things along because I'll go with the old kind of statement. No one thinks that they have enough money when a spouse has died or the family is proceeding and everyone thinks their parent or loved one had more money than they actually did. And they're often surprised by the lack of money. And so so sharing information is extremely important. And having a corporate fiduciary is, is a good way to do that. There's another generalization we can make. I think that uh, everyone, if if you perceive that the executor or the trustee is not being transparent, you start to assume something is wrong. And that may not be the case. It just may be a lack of transparency. But I think suspicions are raised when beneficiaries and don't get the information they need. Yeah. I want to mention one other aspect, too, about co-fiduciaries uh, or, or getting an independent fiduciary. We've seen several cases where uh, the family may have left uh, uh, the estate to, say, three children equally. One child, however, for whatever reason, maybe has issues, maybe has a drug addiction problem. Uh, and so they want to leave the uh, bequest to that child in trust. Making the oldest child the trustee sets up a, a family dynamic that's going to be different. Now that oldest child is controlling things for a sibling. And that's and referred think, to as the defendant in waiting. <laughs> yes. Um, and so in that case, particularly, sometimes an independent trustee might be better. The siblings can focus on being siblings um, and an independent trustee or executor can be making the hard decisions about when this child in trouble is getting Lots of, to funds. lots of people suggest or end up using their CPA either as an individual fiduciary or as a co-fiduciary thinking that there might be some uh, balancing of powers. Do y'all think that's a good idea? Sometimes CPAs aren't too willing to serve in this role. <laughs> um, Most are very reluctant to do it. They tend to shy away from anything that might involve controversy later and getting in the middle of someone's family, managing assets, managing trust for a long period of time. Uh, just reeks of controversy. And, and, and I, I might add, they may decline and therefore you're back in the position. Let's assume, though, for whatever reasons, you're not going to listen to our advice. It's kind of like when talking to my children with advice. It sometimes seems like they're not listening. Um, so let's assume we're going to have co-fiduciaries for whatever reasons. What can we do or what can estate planners do to at least try to make that more successful? I think one of the things we can do is not um, estate planners can't go to the knee-jerk reaction of no need to require accountings and no need to require bond, um, which is what we see often in wills. Maybe if the co-fiduciaries are required to produce an accounting and be more transparent about what's going on with the estate, that will help. And, and Adam, talk about bond. Why, why would having bond be a good idea? Because I know most people say we don't need bond because and bond is really insurance for mistakes is because it costs too much money. Why should we include bonds? Well, well, with corporate fiduciaries, you don't need bonds. So let's get that out of the way. Uh, With individuals, particularly when you have a single fiduciary who can act on their own and and who can act without the supervision or or, um, vote of anybody else, uh, if they behave badly, if they mismanage assets, if they uh, abscond with assets, if they steal assets, if they do any, any of the host of terrible things people do when they're put in charge of money, um, if they squander the money and it is not recoverable, there's no, nobody to collect from. If there's bond in place, then the bond will, will step in and provide coverage if the money is gone and, and not recoverable. 
And we've often seen that the people who are squandering and stealing the money are the same people who spend the money. Um, And if they don't even qualify to get a bond in the first place, maybe this is not the person you want managing your estate. Similarly, if if you name an executor as a person who has no familiarity with QuickBooks and can't put together even a rudimentary accounting, maybe this is not the person who's got the skill set you know, who should be managing your estate. And and let me add with bond, every bond issuer is going to require an accounting. Let's shift a little bit. Actually, uh, before we say that, is there anything else we can do uh, to protect fiduciaries or protect beneficiaries when there are two or three fiduciaries? The code requires that co-executors act unanimously. Uh, But I think in the documents, if that's different, we can do something like have an impasse provision. If there are three beneficiaries, if the will says majority rule controls, then that's fine. But there needs to be some provision for what happens if these co-executors disagree. Yeah, deadlock otherwise requires court intervention. Can you say that one fiduciary, if there's a deadlock, gets to decide one thing like investment decisions and another one gets to decide discretionary decisions? Yes. Let's talk about the, the other really main area where we're seeing problems, and that is really uh, problems that happen before death, uh, whether they be joint bank accounts or powers of attorney or abuse or anything else. And let's kind of talk about powers of attorney. Uh, first, what, why should we have powers of attorney? Millie, you want to do <laughs> I'm happy to do I mean, Because we're not always going to be as competent as we are right this moment. <laughs> That's why. Yes, we're, we're declining as we speak. Um, your powers of attorney allow you to have somebody act on your behalf if you can't act for yourself, whether it's temporarily because of uh, a coma <laughs> or you're, you're having surgery or you have an accident and you're temporarily disabled. Um, it avoids the problem of having to go to court and get a guardian or a conservator in place who is uh, legally authorized. And, and you'd always rather avoid court if you can help it. And, and the problems we see are that the power of attorney, the agent, can do anything. And that's a good thing when the principal, when the, the, the elderly person or older person or whatever, is unable to make a decision. But what we see in life with all of our parents is they age, and I would refer to it as diminished capacity. They're not, they're just a little slower. And it's very hard to resist influences by other people. And when you have a power of attorney without protections in it, the only person who can enforce it is the principal. And what that means is generally, if something's going on, nothing's going to happen because the principal doesn't know until they die. And then it's too late. Well, and if the power of attorney is being used, it means the principal is not really capable of making decisions or, or questioning or looking over uh, books and records. It's usually at a point where they're incompetent. And I am seeing uh, there's lots of powers of attorney. There's even a form attorney in the Georgia statutes, and there's lots of uniform rules. I am seeing that most powers of attorney give the broadest power possible without any restraints. Do you all think that's a good idea? In some cases, it may be. But in many cases, um, I think that it's not. For instance, if someone who doesn't have the best interest of the not only the eight, the principal, but maybe the rest of the family at heart, there can be massive gift giving. Uh, a power of attorney may be able to change beneficiary designations on, uh, you know, IRA accounts and on bank accounts and insurance policies. The agent under a power of attorney can sell property. And the next thing you know, when the family figures out what is going on, there are lots of assets missing. They happen to be in the name of the agent under the power of attorney. Um, and there was no need to disclose any of this any of these transactions to other family members 
So there are lots of ways I think that we can, lots of points at which we can protect against those right, I mean, kinds power, of things. I mean, I mean don't, don't get the wrong impression. The powers of attorney are, are generally good things. They, they allow someone to act for you when you can't act for yourself. The alternative is, is obviously um, going to court and getting court permission. But so, so there are a lot of good reasons to have it. The problem are the potential abuses. And those abuses come from the fact that people with powers of attorney tend to act alone without anybody else's knowledge. And there's no obligation absent a better drafting of a document that they confer with, for example, the other siblings. If you've named your, one of your children as power of attorney, there's no obligation that they let the other children know what's going on. And so a lot of times they're operating in the dark. They may be doing just fine, but again, when you are in the dark, you tend to be suspicious. And if you're worried about how assets are being managed, you have no real way to find out without filing a suit against them. We and, can do better at drafting. And, and let's talk about it. Generally, powers of attorney historically, in addition to wanting to be as broad as possible, allowed for gifting and other things, many times to do estate tax planning. Right now, with the exception of about 0.1% of our entire population, estate planning is no longer really important to tax well, planning. The, ta- the tax planning portion is... is tax planning is no longer sure. important. So we can do things, for example... Gifting, which is very important for estate planning, we could put some restrictions, such as if you're going to gift to a child, it must be equal to all other children. If a gift is over a certain amount, there must be disclosure. Um, one of my, my favorite things to do in a power of attorney is to require an accounting just like an accounting is provided or required in a trustee. And one of my final things that I really think is very important is to empower somebody that is not the agent to enforce the rights of the, of, the, of the principal if he or she can't do that. In other words, force transparency and enforcement. Let, let me switch because I had mentioned something and I think it's kind of important. This is also a huge problem we're seeing. Joint accounts. Many, many, many people as their parents age for very good reasons, their mother, father, and uncle, Say, well, or neighbor, say, why don't you get on my bank account so that you can write checks for me? And that's a very good idea. What is the problem with that in some cases? Well, well, I would take issue with whether it's a good idea. (laughs) It's it's often not a good idea, but Millie, you were about to say something. Well, I was going to say that uh, very often without thinking, you go in and you say you want to open a joint account or add someone to your account. And it's an account that's set up to be held jointly with right of survivorship. What does that mean? That means that when one person dies, the remaining account holder is entitled to the entire balance in the account. So if if mom just wants you to help her write checks, and this is her main account, and she's got 50, 60, you know, $100,000 in her money market account, you're the one sibling helping to write checks. When mom passes away, you've got the $98,000 that's left in the account, and your siblings are left saying, what? And, and that also can be a different situation. As your parents age, typically the two largest assets of most people are their house and their retirement accounts or their brokerage accounts. And you're going to need somebody on a brokerage account to actually direct deposits into your checking account. Same thing with a retirement. As you age, once you change these assets, there's a decent chance that a checking account that used to only have $5,000 has a huge number of uh, amount of assets. Same thing with a brokerage account. Well, if you, if you sold a house and the money is deposited into the account, you suddenly converted into a joint account, basically the, the entirety of your assets. So what's the solution? Well, I think the first solution would be to um, have the person helping you 
set up a, the account as a power of attorney account. So you hold it and you have an obligation to disclose and have an obligation to act under the powers of attorney, which ideally, as we've talked about, might be restricted in some way. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing your wealth. We're your hosts today, uh, Craig Frankel, Millie Bombush, and Adam Gaslowitz from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking today about how to protect your kids from estate disputes. And let me make a note to add on to what what, uh, Millie just said. Most banks, because they're national and they're big, when you walk into a bank and say, I want a joint account, are going to default and just fill it out as joint tenants with rider survivorship. What you should do is say no with your parent there and say, I just want to have access and check writing authority, but I do not want the survivorship. That will generally force a call to a higher up. And that is okay. My suggestion to banks, and I I talk to banks and financial institutions all the time, my suggestion to financial institutions is don't let a line clerk be the one who fills out the form. There aren't that many joint bank accounts being opened every single day. There should be one or two people assigned to it that you talk to that can talk to the customer and say, what is it that you want? And let's figure out how to do it appropriately, because that is uh, a doable thing. Let's talk about beneficiaries. How How do beneficiaries help or hurt for insurance policies or or ownership of houses or 401ks? How does that become a problem? Are we talking about in the context of powers of attorney where someone has the ability to change those beneficiaries? No, we're talking about you've, you've got your insurance policy, for example, and you've named your spouse first and your children next. And it turns out that you're divorced or your children predecease you or you have grandchildren that you hadn't had yet or you have extra children that weren't named by name. Is, is, is this ever a problem on beneficiary designations? Well, you have the uh, the problem of, of people being left off or things changing sufficient to, uh, to to essentially blow up an entire estate plan. So, you know, things that have named beneficiaries pass outside of your probate estate, which means that whatever your will says is irrelevant. Can we can we say that again? If it's not in you, if you don't own it in your own name at the time of death, your will doesn't do anything. Well, it's not just that if you don't own it. If you if you own a bank account or you own your house, but the house has a joint tenant then it does not pass through your will. It passes by operation of law to the surviving joint. Or with a beneficiary designation. With a, with a bank, yes, with a bank account that has beneficiary designations or like with a, a retirement account, which name beneficiaries, assets pass to the beneficiaries, again, by, by contract, as opposed to passing through your will. So if you have an estate that leaves everything to all of your children, for example, but, but you've got um, a, a beneficiary that is named on your life insurance policy that just leaves it to your ex-spouse because you forgot to change it, the will does not control that life insurance policy. The, the policy is controlled by the terms of the policy, and that policy will pass to your ex-spouse. And, and I, I should note that when you have a change in life circumstance like a divorce or additional children or the death of a spouse, these are times you really should go back and look at your designations and beneficiary designations. The truth is most of us don't really know. We filled out the form at work. It came to us. We filled it out once. And even though every single year we get an email that says, if you'd like to change anything, come on, just punch punch in your your code. No one really does. And they're often very surprised or the survivors are very surprised when they find designations that don't work anymore. 
And and this might be a, a good thing to do at the start of the new year as you are, you know, cleaning up your finances and getting ready to do your taxes. People are occasionally surprised about how even their houses are titled. Um, they think that it was titled jointly with right of survivorships, what would go to the spouse. Um, and maybe for some reason it's been titled just as tenants in common or something. Um, we don't know. It may be a good thing to just check and see, check your beneficiary designations on those accounts and you know, the IRAs and the insurance, and to check how your, your houses and your vacation homes yeah, there, and your planes. Yeah, there are also issues. All those assets. Yeah, check there, how they're titled. There are also issues with regard to apportionment of taxes. If your estate is large enough to be taxable, uh, the assets that don't pass through your probate estate are still part of your taxable estate. So, it, you know, if most of your assets go because of a beneficiary designation, uh, the tax um, impact on your estate will be paid by the estate. So the beneficiary of your estate will pay the taxes on assets that passed outside the estate to a joint um, account holder. And, and, and Millie, what you said actually makes a lot of sense. I, I think my suggestion is to, at life events, let's just look at the designations. And I think estate planners and financial planners do this, but you need to look, physically look at the title and the designation, no matter what your client says, because oftentimes they are mistaken or don't remember and just pulling the document up will, in fact, remind them and, and, and get them to move forward. And in today's world, we have lots of financial advisors. We have an insurance agent. One of them may be someone we go to at church. One of them may be a college friend. It is very often that our financial planner or lawyer doesn't actually control or do the documents for everything. So title becomes very important, and it's an easy thing to correct when there's a mistake. And we see a lot of divorced spouses having designations that don't work, either because the spouse, the ex-spouse is still on something or the children are minors and they haven't set up a mechanism to deal with the money they're going to get. And the ex-spouse, in the absence of a mechanism, will be the one who controls all of the funds. In my experience, most spouses do not want their ex-spouse to control all the funds that is supposed to go to their children. And when we're involved in estate disputes, we very often um, are entitled to see the entire planning file of the attorney who drafted the documents. And it is not uncommon that we see a letter to the client that says, now change this beneficiary, do this, do that. Here are the five you know, steps that you need to take. And then the person dies and none of those things have actually been done. And this is so, an and issue that's that, unfortunate. They had the advice. They had the opportunity to do it. Um, and for one reason or another, people are people. And they just this is sometimes an unpleasant kind of thing to think about planning for your death. Um, and people just don't do well, it. And, and people often. Well, not often. I, I've never met a client who, who knew for a fact how their their real property was titled. So how the title to their house was titled. And, um, you know, there are two main ways of doing it, either tenants in common or, or joint tenancy with joint tenancy. The, the property passes to the survivor tenants in common. Uh, the half that you own goes through your estate. So if you think you have joint tenants uh, title to property with your spouse and you don't, when you die, your spouse will get the half that she owns and the other half will pass to your estate, which means that your spouse may not end up with the house you thought she was going to have. Um, it's, it's surprising how many people are just unaware of how their, their property was titled when they bought it. And it really has an effect in, in, in several ways. First, a lot of planning where you transfer an asset to a trust or you transfer it to a family partnership is done for estate or income tax purposes. The IRS is very particular about these things. And the simple answer is, 
if you did not transfer it correctly, it's not transferred. And whatever tax planning you've done doesn't work. And the end result will be that it is included as a taxable event in your estate. The same thing happens when you think you're doing it to create trust or other things for your family. We currently have several estates where the disputes, and two of them are before the Georgia Supreme Court, where whether it did or did not get transferred to a trust is the issue. And we're not talking small dollars here. Some of them, one of the cases is, is valued at $85 million that either did or didn't transfer. And the simple answer is it depends on whether they actually signed the right documents or not. A relatively simple task. And Millie points out that often lawyers say, you know, this is what you need to do, but they're not paid to follow up. Because I ask estate planners, you know, why didn't you just look at it? And their answer was, I wasn't hired. I recommended it to my client, but it just, it's just, you know, they didn't follow up. And my suggestion to the clients is you're paying for a complicated estate planning. You should be checking in with your lawyer or financial advisor on a regular basis, but certainly within a month or so after you've done the planning to make sure that all of the documents are correct. Because candidly, when we come into a case and that is an issue and we represent somebody, we're going to look first to see whether the transfer worked. And if it did not and we're the plaintiff, that's a good thing. If you did not and we're the defendant representing the defendant, that's a very bad thing. (laughs) And it affects how we're going to represent you. And this is something that can be avoided. Let's talk about one other aspect of disputes that we see a lot. Um, Even if you've got the title to your house handled correctly, there's a whole lot of stuff in your house, all your personal property. All all the sentimental stuff. Do we see disputes over personal property at all? (laughs) Do we see disputes over personal property? We see nothing but disputes over personal property. Yeah, this is a big problem. Even with, with estates that are, that are tens of millions of dollars, people will fight harder over the things in the house, often things that have nominal value, because they, uh, people attach uh, sentimental value or perceived sentimental value to things that mom or dad owned or things that they remember being in the house when they were growing up. And, and uh, children will often fight uh, harder over those than over the real valuable assets. I have been involved in an estate dispute where I actually had to go out to the house And the uh, siblings with whom we were disputing were also at the house with their attorneys. And we had police officers there as the children went through the house and, you know, each side picked out what they thought they were supposed to have. Um, This is if if the parents had gifted some of these things during life, they would have enjoyed the thank you, sincere thank you from their children. And we wouldn't have had to have the cops. And we have we've seen some funny issues. We have had massive fights where the estate is worth millions and millions, they resolve the money problems relatively easily, and then they fought over the, the, the cookbooks or the recipes from mom. We've seen people fight over watches. I had an estate recently also worth millions of dollars where the fight was over the dining room table, not an antique, a, just a dining room table with a glass top that both clients had a, both children had a memory of running around with their mother looking up through the glass. Um, one other area that we're seeing with personal property that really creates a problem is guns. <laughs> uh, Adam, explain why that's a problem. Uh, and why that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because they, guns seem to have 
uh, a lot of sentimental value. You know, pe- people either own no guns or they own a lot of guns. There don't seem to be uh, uh, things in between. And, and a lot of times the, the sentiment is attached to um, hunting that, that a child may have done with the father during their lifetime or, um, or remembrances of, of, of the family doing things together that involved uh, um, uh, using guns for target practice or using guns for, uh, for other things. And, and we see fights over them. An unbelievable amount of time. I and mean, we, we remember we had one case where uh, there was a gun safe to protect the guns, but the gun safe, someone had, uh, had uh, used a torch to cut a hole in the safe and had taken all the guns out. So we have problems with, with people taking the guns. We have problems with transporting guns from one state to another if a beneficiary lives out of state. I mean, the, the problems are, are endless. And that the transporting the guns is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And, yeah. and some of the guns are illegal. You'll have a gun from World War One, or that came from well, Jeff- not illegal, just unregistered, unregistered, and an unregistered gun is hard to transport. Transfer. Um, just an interesting statistic: we have more registered guns in Georgia than we have people. The number is higher for guns than people. So there are a lot of guns out there. And, and, and on that note, even before we talk about inheritance of guns, do we really want our aging parents? to have guns in the house that are loaded, this is something that we should be thinking about as our parents well, do age. Well, do you want to try and take it away from them? Uh, not when that's loaded. <laughs> but these are things you might want to talk to your parents about, putting it under lock, going ahead and giving it while you're alive to your children. But, but we are seeing around the state accidents from guns that are in homes because of the elderly. We also handle um, in our firm, you know, contested adult guardianships and conservatorships. And when a parent is starting to lose capacity and there may be a problem and we're trying to get guardianship over that parent and consider moving that parent to a facility for medical care. Um, if the parent is resistant, you know, dementia is setting in and the parent is cranky. Um, it's a real concern that there's a loaded gun in the house, that the parent is going to use it to cause himself or somebody else harm when this is nothing that would have ever happened if the parent were fully competent. Well, well, we so talked so about, waiting, having the guns in the house when it gets to that point, it, it's not safe no. for anyone. And we talk, we've talked about personal property, but we haven't really talked about how you solve some of these problems because they do always create problems. I've been advising people a lot lately to start giving things away. As we age, we, we, we tend to downsize and we tend to need less stuff around us. It is better to give things away, as Craig mentioned earlier, and, and either know that it got to the right person or at least be able to see your possessions now being used and enjoyed by your children, your grandchildren, whatever. So, so giving things away earlier benefits both you and the people you're giving it to. But, but even if you're not going to do that, you know, specifying who gets what, and, and not just with a piece of tape on the, on the back of the painting, but, but actually telling the kids together, you know, I'd like you to have this, or I'd like you to have that, or, or you know, I don't know who should get my diamond ring. In writing. In writing is good, but, but having your children hear you tell them and, and, and hear you tell it to all of them together tends to avoid confusion. It's one thing to, to tell, to pull your son aside and say, I want you to have this, this uh, painting of mine or, or my watch. But if nobody else heard that, nobody else believes it. But, you know, you have uh, holiday get-togethers periodically, and, and rather than talking about death at holidays, you can talk about positive things. And one of those things is, you know, I have this stuff, and I'd like to, you know, start dividing it up amongst some of you or start telling you who I'd like to have this stuff. And that tends to solve a lot of problems. We're nearing the end of our show, of our roundtable. So I'm going to ask each of you if you could give one advice to our listeners as to how to avoid disputes, what would your advice be? And we'll start with Adam. 
Start with, oh, Millie looks disappointed. I am. I don't <laughs> want you to say what I was going Because I want to say what you want to say. Well, I, I always default to the same thing, which is communication. And uh, Oh, I'm sorry, Millie. Um, you can avoid a lot of disputes simply by telling people what you want. And, and particularly if you have uh, families that are structured in such a way that, that there's going to be conflict. You know, you're in second, third marriages. You've got children from multiple marriages. Uh, telling people what you intend and telling them all together so that they all hear it tends to avoid a lot of disputes. People just don't like surprises, and they particularly don't like it when they, when they see your will after you've died. Millie, what's your advice? Um, my advice is the same, communication and disclose. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you got to uh, come up with your own advice. Unfortunately, um, if, if you've got a family where that is the general family practice and everyone seems to be getting along, that's easy to do. In families where there's already discord, uh, that's difficult to do, but in those cases, it's probably even more important to do. Um, and it doesn't have to be a, you know, I'm giving this to, you know, Debbie because she's my favorite daughter and you've always been horrible to me and so you get nothing. It doesn't have to be chastisement. Uh, it just has to be, these are my wishes and I hope you'll honor them and I'm trying to do this fairly. But but you're right, in families that, that communicate well, this isn't a problem. In families that don't, we as as um, advisors and counselors can make that easier for them. We can set up situations where they feel safe. We can set up environments where there are, where there are perhaps additional people, family counselors or other advisors or clergy or whatever who can sit in, in the room also and make a conversation with your children that might otherwise be difficult less difficult. And, and, and just say this, nothing has to be instantaneous. When you use a financial a advisor, you a can process. talk over time. And lots of times it, it becomes actually not unpleasant, but your children and ultimately grandchildren like understanding what's going to happen and, and particularly uh, what you want to happen. Well, we are now wrapping up our show, and I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at The State Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X.